morning, everyone. This talk is called um, Make Practice Your Whole Life. And um, I've been drawing on the, uh, a book, the work of um, Norman Fisher, who is a Soto Zen teacher, Zen priest in um, San Francisco, San Francisco um, who myself and um, some other ordinary minds and teachers have a high regard for. And um, I would recommend you read his book. It's in our library. And it's about Lojong practice, which is a Tibetan practice of slogans. And so it's a Zen perspective on these Lojong slogans. They're, they're very useful. I've, I've drawn on them before in giving Dharma talks. What I like about Norman Fisher is that he comes across to me as a man who is just uh, completely honest about his own experience of having done 40-something years of, of um, committed practice. He's not trying to act like an enlightened person or say all the right things that an enlightened person would say. He's just very honest. And I would say he's that makes him awake because he's honest and true with his experience, not trying to put on, put on some pretense that he's more enlightened than what he is. That's a good role model. Making life your own practice, making practice your whole life, sorry. And there's a subtitle to this which is about assessing where we are in practice. Now, to take the first point of making practice your whole life, there can be a tendency to think that, oh, I've done my half hour of meditation today or I've done my, my yearly session, I've done my practice and now I just get on with my life. Whereas that, that's not how to practice. That's not the way it goes. It's not like you do your gym exercises in the morning or your yoga and then you get on with your day. It's about your whole life. It's practice. And the trouble is, people, when you say that to people, at least people who are beginning or contemplating practice, although it seems all too hard, but it's not. You know, it, it's not a daunting task at all. <clears throat> it, people think it means doing there's something else you've got to do, right? And, it, and I haven't got the time to do it. You know, I'm too busy to do it. But all, it, all the practice requires is doing whatever you're doing, and it's all about how you do it. It's not about doing something different, it's just about how you do it. So if you've got to do all the, the usual things you do, like taking the kids to school or doing the shopping, doing the washing up, you know, making breakfast, all those tasks that make up every life, everyday life, walking down the road to get the paper, doesn't matter what it is, we either turn up and we are awake to it and present to those things that we already do, that's the how of it, or, or we're not. We have a commitment to doing that or not. And so that's, that's the commitment we need to make for our lives really to transform, is you make, you make the practice your whole life. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes people um, take particular um, activities that they do, do during the day to really really focus in and turn up the mindfulness practice on those things. One of the things I do is when I make breakfast and 
I, I don't do it slowly, but I, but I don't do it rushed either. I don't do it impatiently trying to get through to it so I can eat. Just that the pace is taken off and it's just being mindful of one step at a time. M- mindful of just putting the, the tea into the teapot. Right? Just mindful of boiling the water. Just mindful of pouring it in rather than distracted. Then you make, you make your life, everything in your life practice. There's nothing special you've got to do. Just keep doing what you're doing, but just bring mindfulness, awake, wakefulness to those moments. The other thing about um, uh, this, these, um, these slogans that I'll come to are about um, assessing how we're going in practice. Now, it is important to assess how we're going in practice. Um, I remember a conversation I had with another Zen student in the Sydney Zen Centre years ago, before I was a teacher, and, and I was talking about that I felt that Zen practice changes people, like it brings a transformation, people change as a result of doing it. This other person kind of poo-pooed what I was saying and came from this absolute point of view, well, there's nothing to be gained. You know, Buddha nature is just Buddha nature. You don't actually gain anything, so it's silly to think that anything changes. Well, that, that's not, unfortunately, a correct view. That, that, again, is what I said about what Thich Nhat Hanh said. People want to jump into the absolute, that there is no gain, you know, no change occurs. The kind of way of showing off some deeper insight. But really, the whole point of of seeing practice and one of the things that, that you learn through Cohen's study in particular is not to get stuck in any point of view. Don't get stuck in any point of view. They're just points of view. Right? Don't get stuck in the relative point of view that there's change. Don't get stuck in the absolute point of view that there's no change. Mm-hmm. Don't get stuck anywhere. That's the real, that's the real uh, indicator of practice. Mm-hmm. And as people who um, uh, do Cohen study, and from my own experience as well, you, you're stuck in the absolute, and, and there's plenty of koans you won't pass because you're stuck in the absolute. And you just got to stay there until you realise that that's where you're stuck and something dissolves and you open up and you move beyond that. It's like, um, it's not too dissimilar to... Um, working as a psychologist, someone comes in to see you and they're suffering from depression and they and you want their depression to go down, to be lessened, for the suffering to be less through doing a course of therapy with you. That's the change we want to see. Practices like that as well. And if doing your best, you did your best and the therapist did your best and the depression didn't change or the anxiety didn't change, then it would be a matter of letting it be, you know, and coming to terms with that, with self-compassion, you know, without judgement, you know, and just accepting that that's one of, part of one's condition rather than fighting it. That's also a kind of a, a change mm-hmm, that leads to some kind of ease in the way that people experience themselves. Um, there are four points to um, assessing um, how we're going in practice and I'll just go through them and then we'll go through each of them in a little bit more depth. 
Um, the first one is there is only one point. Second one is trust your own eyes. The third one is maintain joy and humour. And the fourth one is practice even when you are distracted. They're kind of quirky, the Lo Jong slogans. They're not kind of um, staid, logical, point-by-point sort of progression. They're quirky and they all kind of balance one another. You can go, like I said with the absolute and the relative, if you just take one point, you could go off to an extreme position. So the next one brings you back. You can go too far off the left on the road. Then you've got to come back to the centre or you go too far off the right. You've got to come back. So all of these things balance one another. Um, The first one, there is only one point. Um, To put it in our terms, the one point, the only one point, is that we're stuck in the self-centred dream. That's the one point. And what are we going to do about it? That's the point. That's That's the only one point. And um, basically what this, this, uh, this Lokjong is saying is saying, don't be so stuck on yourself. Mm-hmm. What human beings do is that we, 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 we view the world through our own subjective vision and all of us have developed a viewpoint about life and it's kind of habitual. And our viewpoint, our viewpoint is just projected onto life, kind of whatever we do. And it might be an optimistic one or a pessimistic one or a sceptical one, whatever it might be. Um, might be that life is a dangerous place. No, it's not a dangerous place, it's exciting. Whatever it might be, we have a viewpoint and it's habituated. We're stuck. Mm-hmm. And um, our practice is to assess one of the ways of assessing our practice is how much are we willing to open up? Mm -hmm. How much are we willing to be aware of that stuck viewpoint that I identify with as me? And how am I willing just to open up to other possibilities? Mm -hmm. And if we do that, do you know, if there's that willingness and we assess that that willingness is there just to open up to other possibilities other than our own fixed viewpoint, then one of the things we can measure with that in a subjective way um, is how much, as we practice and as the years go on, how much more do we feel positive towards other people and how, how much more generosity can we give to other people in our life? If our practice is working, that's the direction in which it will go. There's a a, a deeper sense of appreciation for what we have and a a generosity towards others. Other people have their faults and so on like we do. But we're not judging them harshly, you know, and we're not so guarded and protected and we're willing to extend that that generosity of of spirit to them as well. That's a change. That, that will occur as we mature in practice. May I say too about um, maturing in practice? Um, uh, to go back to a previous writer that I've been making reference to recently, Jordan Peterson, one of his chapters is about 
Don't compare yourself to others. Compare yourself to how you were. So there is a comparison. If you're making an assessment of how you're going, there is, an ass- there is a comparison. But make that assessment about how you were right, and how you are now because to get into comparison with others is just another trap that leads you nowhere and leads to either lack of self-worth or arrogance or both, shifting in and out of those. There's nothing wrong in comparing yourself to how you were, provided it's not done in a harsh kind of way. But just to share with you what I do over the years too, sometimes I think... Um, I, I usually think back in, in five-year periods and I think, well, when you were like that back then, I, I say to myself about five years ago, I kind of the inner conversation is, well, Jeff, you were rather immature back then, weren't you? Mm. That's what I say. And then another five years go by and I look back on that five years and I go, yes, you were a little bit immature back then, weren't you? But you're growing. You're doing your best. You're growing. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I'm sure in another five years' time from now, I'll look back on now and I'll think of the Dharma talks I gave and how I lived my life, and I'll go, yeah, sure, a bit immature back then. And probably I'll say that on my deathbed as well. But you did your best. That's the way that we can, that's the way that we can approach it. Um... The second point is trust your own eyes. Now, um, the literal translation is of the two witnesses, trust the principal one. That's the literal translation. So there's two witnesses. There's you and others. Mm -hmm. Um, Trust you is what this one is saying. So this is a counter to the first one. Like be open to the viewpoints of others and other possibilities and don't be stuck on your own viewpoint. But at the end of the day, um, part of becoming confident, as I was referring to in practice, in a way is becoming your own authority on you rather than giving your power away to others. And we live in our own subjective world alone and, and Only you and I know what it is that we're really experiencing from the inside. Only I know what it is I'm thinking and what I'm feeling because I'm the one experiencing it and the same for you. And so it requires being really honest with ourselves but um, we can be an honest witness to our own experience. Uh And really only we know whether we're making progress in the Dharma or not, whether we're growing or not. So it's important to balance that first one with this second one. I'll give you an example of that too, where, where, where um, uh, people are, are not trusting their own experience. Um, there's been a number of occasions over the years when I've done couple therapy, and, and, and one of the partners in, in the couple therapy is a psychologist or a therapist, and they're often bringing their partner in to fix them up. Uh, because they can see that they, they need help, you know. And, and, um, and, and they assume that because I'm a therapist too, somehow I'm going to side to them, and I actually won't. I, I actually go the other direction, you know, because I'm not going to be pulled into that kind of delusion. You know, both people have got to see the work that they need to do. 
And I remember one guy in particular who his his wife was a therapist, and um, and he he she would say things like, "Well, you're not feeling that. You're actually feeling this, and you're feeling this." And and I could see him getting confused, you know. And so what was going wrong there is that she assumed the authority, you know, of how he was feeling, and he gave his power away. Right? And, I, and at some point I did intervene and I spoke about it. You're, you're the authority on how you feel. You, you, you listen to what you're feeling. You know what you're feeling. And I tried to em- encourage him to empower himself, you know, and to challenge what his partner was doing. Um, it's very, very important that we, we, we become our own authority and we don't give our power away to others. Um, and to the extent that we do, uh, and don't follow this, this principle of trusting your own minds, if you're always giving your power away to other people and think that they know better about you, um, you're wobbling all the time. You know, when you're comparing and wobbling and looking outside of yourself, am I doing it right or not? And then you're not engaged in, in your own life and in your own task. So yes, you could, be, you could become um, impervious to the feedback of other people and not listen to it. That's not the point here. At the end of the day, you get feedback from other people and you make your own assessment as whether that's accurate for you or not. But you trust your own eyes and you trust your own experience. And, and it's part of growing and maturing that, that, that you make an honest assessment. Mm-hmm. You make an honest assessment. Um, one of the things I don't like about the way Buddhism is growing in the West is that there's so much emphasis on being non-judgmental and being self-compassionate, etc. Now, I agree with all those things. It's an important part of the practice. Um, wouldn't doubt that for a moment. But it's unbalanced. And, and the side that's missing from it is that it's also part of practice to be quite um, firmly assertive with ourselves as well. That's the counterbalance to it. You know, if you're just always non-judgmental and soft on yourself, then do you, do, you really, do you really challenge yourself to grow? Do you really see the delusions which are there, you know, or the ignorance is there if you don't challenge yourself? Now, most people think of assertiveness as something that you learn to deal with with other people, right? But I would suggest the, the best place to start is with ourselves. And, and learn to be assertive towards yourself. Being assertive is neither being aggressive and judgmental, and neither is it just being passive and doing nothing. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you some personal examples of it. One, in my professional life, it happens roughly about two or three times a year that I've forgotten to write up the notes of someone that I've seen, like particularly if it's a first session and I've had someone straight after it and then it's gone out of my mind and I've forgotten to do it. And then they turn up for their next appointment and I look in my filing cabinet and I can't see the file. And, um, and uh, the first point is, oh, oh dear, sort of panic, like who are these people, what did they say, um, how am I going to provide a good service to them? And then the second, and, and I'm, I'm kind of 
laughing at myself as this happened, I'm, I'm aware of it. So there's a bit of a panic. And the second one is, right, who's to blame for this? <laughs> right? There must be someone to blame. Oh, yeah, it's me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right, okay, yeah, okay. And, and, uh, but what I say to myself, I don't say, oh, that's okay, Jeff, just be kind to yourself, we all make mistakes. What I actually say to myself, this is not good enough. This is not good enough. I'm here, people are paying me money for a good service and I've neglected my, my duty and it's just not good enough. And there's a commitment to do it better next time. Mm -hmm. And then I forgive myself when I get on with it. Right? I keep getting preoccupied. But that's the inner conversation that takes place. Or well, one at home, because we have a dog, and sometimes when I come in, you know, um, after work or whatever, and the dog is on the veranda, and, and being a lovely dog, um, when you come in the gate, he, he gets up, he's lying down, he actually makes the effort of getting up, and he walks across the veranda to the front door, and he wants to greet you. And sometimes um, I've been so busy, like, with shopping in my hand and trying to get through the door and preoccupied, and I've forgotten to greet him. And I'm, then I'm aware of it. And the same, the same admonishment goes, and so that, that's not good enough. That's just not good enough. Here's this dear dog, do you know, has made the effort to come out and greet you, and you've ignored him, right? And he's a pack animal. Do you know, they, they, want, to, they want to say goodbye and hello, you know? And, um, and so I'll stop, and I'll have that, that conversation. This is not good enough. And I'll go back and scratch his ears, pat him on the head. Mm -hmm. So, there is a way of being assertive with ourselves, which is not harsh and judgmental, but, but it's, it's being kind of direct and frank. It's not going to harm us to do that. Then the third one is, um, maintain joy and good humour. Um, so, when we can when we assess ourselves as to whether we're doing this through practice, whether we can maintain joy and good humour, what that shows is that we're growing because our emotional reactions to life are not just automatic knee-jerk reactions to adverse circumstances. We all have adverse circumstances that occur, but if we're not practicing, oh, that's just terrible, you know, I'm miserable and cranky and so on. But to have adverse circumstances and to have a sense of joy and humour in it at the same time is quite something. And I'm reminded in reflecting on this one, years ago I remember watching um, a boat race, I think it was the America's Cup, you know, everyone's very serious about and stern about winning and everything and grim about it, even though it's just a sport. And there was this particular skipper of one of the boats and he was going really well, you know, he was ahead of the fleet and, and then, for no reason at all, they, they, they dropped into a dead spot where there was no wind and all the other boats started going past them. And the skipper turned to the crew and, you know, in, with a sense of good humour, he said, well, we're in deep shit now. <laughs> uh -huh. And that same spirit, you know, we can, we can bring to more, more important aspects of suffering or adverse circumstances in our life. Um, personally, when I, when I lost my hearing in my right ear four years ago, it was kind of like, okay, well, that's happened and it told me it's not going back. Kind of like, well, I'm in deep shit now. Mm -hmm. 
And um, we find, you know, we're going along okay, and then we get cancer. Kind of like, oh, I'm in deep shit now. Mm -hmm. When we can bring that spirit to it, that's a sign that our, our, our practice is maturing. And to make reference back to what I said in a previous talk a day or two ago about the three marks of existence is suffering. Um, is there someone else there? Um, suffering, um, life is, the, the three marks of existence are suffering, emptiness, and impermanence. Years ago, I got rather confused by that. I couldn't understand it because I couldn't understand why suffering was permanent because the Four Noble Truths said it is an end of suffering. So why would that be a permanent mark of existence? I could see the other two. And then I read Thich Nhat Hanh at some point and he clarified. He said, well, it's actually, there's just the two of them and that was added in. The suffering one was added in years later because Buddhists were so preoccupied with suffering, you know, life was suffering. But when the point I'm making, which comes back to humour and joy, is that when we see impermanence and insubstantiality as our enemies, then we will suffer. When we see that impermanence and insubstantiality are our friends, we will no longer suffer. That is the point. And that's where joy and good humour arises, even, even when our life changes from healthy to non-healthy, you know, to favourable to non-favourable. We just embrace the impermanence of life and the insubstantiality of life. And all good humour arises out of that place, out of that transformation. The last one is practice when you are distracted. So with practice, we need, we need to be um, uh, committed and we need to be, have a sense of firmness in, in solidarity in the way that we do it. But like if anything, like any kind of art, art if, you're too, if it's too harsh and too disciplinarian, then you get anxious and then you don't do it well. Same with practice. You can go to that far extreme of being too, too hard on yourself or you can be too soft on yourself. Um, but there again, they're the extremes and we're practicing the middle way. But we all get distracted. You know, on the cushion and off the cushion, we all get distracted. We get caught up in dreaming and we get caught up in, in self-preoccupation or anger or worry, whatever it might be. And uh, it's, again, an indicator that we're maturing in practice that we, we roll that distraction, we use that sense of distraction to plough us back into practice again. And that's what the practice of labelling is that we do so much. So your primary object of meditation is your breath and your body and then your mind wanders off in distraction and then you label it. That's the second point. So the labelling, when your mind becomes distracted, that becomes a point of practice too. Well, now I've aware that I wandered off. Right? And then we come back to the moment again. So it's... People can give up in, in despair, you know, when they, they find after years and years of practice they, they get, still get distracted, you know, and think, oh, I'm not good enough at this and I'm failing and what's the point of doing it? 
she just drink wine <laughs> and gamble. And, uh, but, but when you realise it's just the nature of mind to become distracted and your job is to be aware of the distraction and come back again, then you don't get frustrated with yourself. You don't get disheartened. You, know, you, just, you just notice it and you do whatever is the next thing you need to do. Come back to what you're doing. Come back to it with presence. So, I mean, I've been practising, I don't know, how long, 40 years, I get distracted all the time. But I know that is a difference from when I first started off. I get distracted and I'm willing to see it and, I, and it doesn't take me as long to recognise that I am distracted. And when I go, I go, OK, back to the task. There's no f- further thinking happens. Whereas when I was younger, it would be, it would be frustrating and there would be a disturbance there. But now there's not so much of a disturbance. Finally, what I'd like to say too, a very important point, that when, when we practice, particularly when we do a, a session, is, uh, or e- even in daily life, is that <clears throat> when all the distractions are gone from our life and we're just present with our inner experience and our feelings coming and going and our thoughts, um, it's endemic in, in our culture in particular that people drop into a sense of worthlessness, you know, a low self-esteem, whatever you might want to call it, but it's kind of like a, 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 a negative view of themselves. And um, a lot of people give up practice at that point. They may not understand why they do, but they, that, that, that's what they drop into. And they think, oh, this is not working or it's making me more depressed, so I'll leave. But again, one of the indicators that we're maturing in practice is that we can see that that sense of low self-worth is not the true you, right? It's just a viewpoint about you which you've developed through various things that have happened. And it's become a habitual way that you're in a viewpoint that I'm I'm not worth much, I'm unworthy. with practice, those feelings may still even arise, but you're not identifying with it. Mm-hmm. And the more you do something like this, a session, and, and a lot of you have described this process to me in, in Dyson, this session and other sessions, you can touch that place where you get to that sense of, of unworthiness. And you sit, you just keep sitting and you're sitting and it disappears. It's it's not there anymore. You don't even know why it disappeared. It's because it was just a viewpoint, right? And you're no longer clinging to it. You're no longer believing that it's true. And then, and as we practice, we just drop into our true self. Or, and it's kind of like, what is your true self when you're sitting? Well. your true self when you're sitting, just sitting. What is your true self when you're shaking hands? How do you do? Where is your true self when you're playing the flute? There's nothing more to it than that. It's just that you're just one with that, that moment and that action. That's the true self. It's not this feeling of worthlessness. You know, you know, Look at it this way, you're neither 
worthwhile or worthless. <laughs> they're just words. You're neither perfect or imperfect, they're just words. Mm -hmm. But we get stuck on a viewpoint. Um, but when we return to the true self and we just sit and we just shake hands and we just play the flute, then there's a natural joy comes out of that experience. And that is the fruit of this practice. So it is important to um, be able to reflect and assess sometimes how we're going along those different dimensions. The practice does change us and it does transform us. And um, that's why we do it. <laughs>